Hello, it's Thursday 9th of November. I'm Hannah Pearson. On today's show, Gary Bowen and I will be rounding up eight current travel and tourism talking points that may have snuck under the radar. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. So we've got another top eight travel talking points show for you today. But this week, we're delving into a few developments that may not make major headlines. We still think they're pretty interesting. We kind of decided that although we do the monthly roundup show, there are so many good stories at the moment, and uh, some of those were, weren't getting discussed. So we decided to, to put together a list of eight stories today. Over the next 30 minutes, we'll travel from Singapore to Brunei, Indonesia to China, and Thailand to Japan. So Hannah, number one story, where should we start? Let's start in Singapore, um, and more specifically, Singapore Aviation. Yeah, good story, this. So this actually follows up a little bit on what you were saying in last week's um, podcast, Hannah, about the slowdown of aviation and the slowdown of arrivals into Singapore. And this has been codified in an article in the Straits Times, which you might find a little bit surprising at this time of year, that they're actually being you know, very, very realistic about what the current situation is. It's a really good article. It's written by Brendan Sobey, who's an independent aviation analyst in Singapore, who's been on the show before. Uh, he looks at all different angles um, of how the airlines uh, in Singapore have kind of slowed down capacity a little bit. He looks at some of the reasons and basically says that in terms of the aviation recovery, you know, you're looking at least another year out, probably the end of 2024, or even going into 2025. Now, I thought this was quite interesting, Hannah, for a couple of reasons. One, that we've seen at the start of the year, didn't we? And Singapore got off to a flyer, really. It was recovering that first portion of, of airline capacity. I remember Maya Patel from OAG was on the show, and he said, you know, recovering that first 50% of capacity, quite easy to do. The next 30% up to 80% a bit trickier, but that last 20% was going to prove to be difficult for lots of reasons, you know, in terms of passenger demand, um, the pressures of the airlines in terms of the number of aircraft they have because they downsize, the supply chain issues, and just the whole macroeconomic uh, environment. And this is something, as I said, Hannah, you touched on in the, the past podcast. It's, it's this kind of sign of the times, not unexpected, I don't think, but it's a, it's, it's a reality that that the industry is having to face. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what what Matt Patel said about that that last bit being so difficult to come back has really rung true. I mean, when we look at Changi, it's probably one of the uh, I'd say probably one of the best performing um, airports across Southeast Asia in terms of getting to that recovery. Um, and you know, Brendan Sobe points out it's it's at about around about ninety percent, but it's kind of got stuck there since May. It's been a little less, a little bit more. You know, it's it's there's there's no movement, and it's exactly like you were saying, Gary. In terms of the tourist arrivals as well, it, it it's it's a bit stuck. How do you push beyond that when you have all of those issues? You know, that perhaps revenge travel slowing down the supply chain issues, other airlines being very cautious about adding back China um, capacity, and that's the big one. So yeah, it's it's definitely a sign of the times. It's where we are, but. An interesting pick, I think. You know, there's always the perception that they're doing exceptionally well. And they're doing pretty well, but we're still not there yet. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think uh, that sums up pretty much, you know, Singapore, I, I guess, you know, we've, we've often flagged it up um, because aviation is so important to its, its whole economy, not just travel and tourism, that it was so intent on getting back capacity as quickly as it could. 
tried even to do that during the pandemic, didn't it? It had these vaccinated travel lanes to try and get things moving. Um, but it's just hit, you know, what is proving to be a block across the industry in, in Asia Pacific at the moment. As you said, you know, is that that phrase revenge travel? Are we coming to the end of that? Some people have, have, have outright said yes, that it doesn't exist anymore, that that hasn't just tapered, that it's kind of stopped. But then I guess we have to look at what that means for 2024. You know, will there be a new wave of demand? Uh, or are we going back into patterns that are very, very different to those that everybody hopes for, which is 2019? Yeah, exactly. And I think it's also interesting to think about that even Singapore, which is a country that really, during the pandemic, saw the government put a lot of subsidies, a lot of support to keep people in their jobs. Uh, they had that job support scheme. They were seconding air hostesses out to you know, even shopping malls, I think, well, I can't remember what they called them, but, you know, basically people who were making sure nobody got too close to one another. Um, even with all of that, they're still not back there yet. So what hope to some of the countries in the region who really had very, very little support from the government have in, in getting back if only Singapore is going to reach it at the end of next year? What? Where does that leave the Malaysias, the Philippines, the the Thailands of Southeast Asia? Yep. Very, very good point. Watch this space. So that's number one. Number two story, Hannah, this is a very, very different angle on tourism. Uh, and this is a shattered glass bridge in Indonesia. Have you been following the story? I have, yes. So we saw a 10 meter high glass bridge at the Gyeong, which is in Limpakuas or Pine Forest in Banyumas Regency, Central Java. So that's somewhere between Bandung and Yogyakarta. If you haven't heard of it, I had to look it up on the map as well. Um, but it gave way completely on 27th of October. It left one person, you know, very unfortunately dead, three injured. And I think it just goes to show, you know, one, I guess, what is the point in building these things? And and two, those those safety standards or perhaps lack thereof to build these kind of tourist attractions. Yeah, I mean, the scariest thing about this is the investigation has shown just how thin and flimsy that glass is. It, it's a fully glass bottom bridge uh, all the way across the suspension. And if that glass is uh, thin, as uh, has been proved, uh, of course, that's very, very dangerous. This actually follows up on stories that happened in China three or four years ago. That a similar thing happened. There was a, a, a kind of spate of new glass bridges across valleys and across uh, mountains and rivers in China. And some of them were, were getting longer and even higher. And But the same thing happened. One that was very, very high shattered uh, where there was a guy walking across it and there was uh, social media images of him just hanging on, just hanging on. They managed to, to rescue him. But again, it was a similar case that proved that the glass simply wasn't strong enough, wasn't reinforced. But, you know, these, these attractions have become very, very popular because, you know, the reason is social media, isn't it, Hannah? Everybody wants to, to go and try out these adventurous pursuits and, and film themselves doing so. Um, but it's very, very dangerous if, the, you know, safety isn't being upheld. I think there's been an arrest in Indonesia with the company that provided the glass. But, you know, that doesn't really solve the problem. There actually have to be real strong, stringent safety standards to prevent it happening in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's on a weekly basis now that I'm reading another article about somebody somewhere in, in the region or the wider region who was trying to get that perfect shot for, for Instagram and fell off a cliff or whatever it is. It just, at a certain point, you wonder. Why? why? Why are people going to all of this effort to create content for these big social media machines for other people to consume when 
you know, potentially it costs your life. So big, big questions there uh, for sure. Yeah, totally agree with that. So let's move on to our third story, Hannah. And this is uh, two countries relatively closely together, the Philippines and Japan. They've signed a new tourism cooperation agreement, two way to, to increase uh, travel flows between the two countries. Quite interesting because this was part of a visit to Southeast Asia by the Prime Minister of Japan, Fumio Kushida. He was in the Philippines and here in Malaysia last week looking at trade and security ties, but also tourism as well. Uh, pretty interesting. There was uh, an editorial in Chinese state media said that uh, Prime Minister Kushida was interfering in uh, in Southeast Asia. But, you know, I think this is quite an interesting thing that we're seeing, Hannah's you know, countries in the region have got to look beyond Chinese tourism. It's, that's been proved this year. And when you, you're involved with countries like Japan and South Korea, you know, that comes not just with numbers of visitors and flights, but also potentially uh, investment in your tourism infrastructure, which is something that the Philippines is really, really pushing on at the moment. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, if you're looking at some of the more developing countries in the region, countries like Cambodia or Laos, they get a lot of tourism um, funds for infrastructure, like you said, from these government-led programs from Japan, from Korea, so that there's always these these deeper links. It isn't just the usual, you know, USAID who are in there in the pot and the Chinese aid, but, you know, the Eastern Asian neighbors are in on the action too. So it's been an interesting cooperation deal. It's a five-year deal signed between the Department of Tourism in the Philippines and MLIT in Japan, so the Ministry of Land Infrastructure and Transport. And for me, it was interesting on the areas that they said that they were going to look at. So they said they wanted to promote areas um, that were rural. I thought that was interesting in terms of that dispersion. Of course, for Japan, that's, that's really a key priority to get them away from those, you know, very beaten path destinations like Kyoto or Tokyo. Um, encouraging tourism for education. Of course, the Philippines is, you know, a destination that attracts people to come to study English. Um, it, it's, it's really got that attraction for many overseas tourists. Um, gastronomy was another feature. And for me, um, adventure. I saw that. I was very pleased to to see adventure. And I, I'm hoping that that was the Japan side that were pushing that um, after we had our Adventure Travel World Summit. So maybe that was uh, more in their mind. But also they were, you know, enhancing connectivity, which we know is key, and looking at those high-value added travelers. But you know, I would caution all of this with a little bit of what we were talking about last week in that you can sign a, a cooperation agreement, but actually you need the nuts and bolts of what does that actually mean. So they have formed a working group to figure that out, but there aren't actually any concrete plans right now about what does that mean, a Philippines-Japan tourism cooperation. Yeah, that's true. This this region does love its working groups, doesn't it? And they, they tend to uh, take quite a long time to actually come up with uh, with proposals and things like that. But I do think this is quite positive and uh, let, let's, let's see where it goes. We'll, we'll be following this story uh, across the next year. Hannah, let's move on to our fourth story. Now, this is one that you found and I'd completely missed. Uh, this relates to three countries, China, Thailand and Laos. Tell us more. Yeah, well, this is an interesting one. So it's concerning the Thai province of Nongkai, um, which is just bordering Laos. So literally, if you're in Vientiane, you look across the, the Mekong River and um, 
Nongkai is on the other side. Um, so apparently the chairperson of the Nongkai Provincial Tourism Industry Council has said that Tencent, obviously this Chinese company that owns WeChat amongst many other things, is actually very keen to invest in the Nongkai Special Economic Zone. So there's you know, areas revolving around mechanical engineering. Okay, that's interesting enough. But it says they're planning to invest in an ancient city tourism attraction with duty-free shops and amusement parks. They want to build the world's largest Vesavana statue, which will be linked to the world's largest Guanyin statue in Kunming. And they have this idea of creating a tourist route connecting Thailand, Laos, and China. And just really this hope that this kind of connection can draw more Chinese tourists into Thailand. Um, and I presume a lot of this is hoping that they can really build on the Laos-China railway, which of course is to Vientiane and then just hop across the border and you're in Nong Kai. Um, so it's an interesting one. We'll, we'll see how it goes. But, you know, we were talking about just now Koreans and Japanese investing in infrastructure. Chinese are a big one. So it would be very interesting to see what happens um, with this development in Nongkai and what this ancient city tourism attraction might be. Very, really interesting story, Hannah. Another one that we'll, uh, we'll keep our eye on over the, the next year. Moving on to our fifth story, this is also one that I think was quite easily missed. And this actually um, is rooted in Brunei, but has close relations with China. And this is a startup airline called Gallup Air, which you may or may not have heard of. Gallup Air um, is still in the formative stages. It uh, wants to use Brunei as its base. It's invested by a Chinese uh, investor, a businessman, uh, who is currently uh, trying to seek more investment from uh, other Chinese banks and companies. The proposal really is to use Brunei as a base for developing new air services around Borneo. So as we know, uh, Indonesia is building its new capital in Borneo. There are two huge Malaysian states on the island as well, and then also into Southeast Asia. So there is sort of perceived to be an opportunity for Borneo's aviation sector to start growing, you know, to, to, to considerably grow and connect it more with, with Southeast Asia. But the interesting element to this, I guess, is that Gallup Air has made uh, quite a significant investment or a down payment on some Chinese-made jets, Chinese-made passenger jets, which there are two different types which China is trying to make its own aviation construction industry self-sufficient. And it's built two, two jets, ARJ-21 and the C919. Now, the ARJ-21 is sort of a regional jet, a little bit smaller, but it's got this larger passenger jet called the C919, which hasn't yet been purchased by an airline outside of China. Gallup Air would be the first one. The ARJ-21 has actually been bought by an airline in our region. Uh, that's Transnusa Airlines, which is in Indonesia. Again, that airline is backed by Chinese investors. And it currently flies that, that plane, this Chinese-made plane, on the route between Jakarta and Kuala Lumpur, Hannah. Wow. As I said to you when we were preparing this podcast, this one went completely over my head. Brunei is not even on my uh, radar, really, as such a tiny little state. But um, it's interesting. I don't know how much they can really expect to build themselves up as a hub. I mean, yes, I suppose they are kind of the jumping off point then between South Southeast Asia. So we're talking kind of the Indonesia part with the Philippines or a bit north of to China. 
Um, so you've, you've got that kind of going for them. Um, and I suppose with, you know, the opening of Indonesia's new capital in Kalimantan as well, perhaps they're hoping that that will be a, a good starter. But you would also think that perhaps Kalimantan might gear up to be that hub for uh, for Indonesia. So it's ambitious. I uh, let's let's see what happens. I think oh, <laughs> I'll, I'll keep my reservations in check, but um, a little bit skeptical, let's say. Ah, well, I would tend to agree with. That. I think you know, setting up a new airline at the moment is pretty tricky business. But as you say, this this one is quite interesting in the fact that potentially it has different route networks. It it's not really initially going to connect with the major Chinese cities. It's looking at two cities in the south of China, sort of southwest, Nanning and and Guilin, which are quite close to Southeast Asia. So. Um, you know, there, there would be opportunities there. But I agree, this is at very, very early formative stages. It's kind of the press release stage at the moment. We've got to to go through a long, uh, you know, a lot of processes yet in terms of getting its license, uh, getting more investors on board to see what actually happens. But yeah, an interesting story you don't see, or we haven't in the history of our podcast yet, Hannah, found an airline that wanted to use Brunei as a hub. <laughs> That's true. Maybe we should have a dedicated Brunei episode one day. So if if you know something about Brunei, let us know. We'd we'd love to speak to you and learn more. I think. Um, let's keep with the aviation theme. Um, move it back over to Malaysia, and this is uh, one of your picks, Gary, about Firefly, which are the uh, subsidiary of Malaysian Malaysia Airlines. Um, they are starting their inaugural flight from Penang to Bangkok. Yeah, so this one is relatively interesting for a couple of reasons. One, I think, because if we go back to the pandemic, uh, Malaysia Airlines started pushing some of its planes to Firefly. Firefly mostly flies, I think almost exclusively, turboprop flights on domestic routes. They don't have the capacity to fly all the way to Bangkok. So Firefly has actually obtained some of the planes from Malaysia Airlines, which would allow allow it to do this. And it it has plans to, to fly to more short-haul regional routes in Southeast Asia. So that's the first element that I think is quite interesting. The second one is Penang International Airport. You know, it's had huge opportunity. Well, it's had huge potential for many, many years, but it's been not able for a number of reasons to to expand uh, and, and, and introduce more international flights. There is now a proposal to expand Penang International Airport, I think, to 12 million passengers per year. Um, that could go ahead and start next year at the earliest. So that would increase the capacity. I was actually in Penang last week and you know, tourism is thriving there at the moment. But one of the issues definitely uh, when they do or if they do expand the airport is just capacity, road capacity, service capacity. You know, there's not enough roads there. The traffic is really, really bad at weekends now. But everybody's enjoying themselves. You know, everybody's the, the, the restaurants, the hotels. You know, all the tourism facilities are doing quite well at weekends up there at the moment. But, you know, there is a real bottleneck on traffic. And if you've got more uh, air traffic coming in, you know, that's going to make that even worse. There is talk of a light railway, but, you know, that will be years away. So, you know, these, this is quite interesting of turning Penang into a, more of a tourism hub, inbound and outbound, but some of the infrastructure issues that come with it. Yeah. And it, you know, it, it makes sense to have Penang, you know, as this northern hub in Malaysia right now for, you know, much outbound travel. If, you know, Penangites want to go anywhere, they've got to fly via KL and then, you know, transit out. So that idea of building up the hub, having more options definitely makes sense. And even in the last few months, you know, we've seen Qatar Airways announce that they're flying back to Penang. We saw Fly Dubai announced that they were going to fly a route um, that takes in Penang and Langkawi. Um, so certainly it's on the radar 
for a lot of airlines. And they wouldn't start there if they didn't see demand both in and out um, from Penang. Yeah, totally agree. I think the the, the potential for, for increasing the number of visitors to Penang is certainly there. I think that it's a very, very popular destination. It has a lot to offer. It's quite small, but you know, it's 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 the capacity issues that come around it. So that's six stories down, Hannah. We've got two to go. Number seven takes us back to Singapore. And once again, this is one of your stories that I completely missed. So tell us more. Yeah, sure. I mean, this is a, it's a kind of medical tourism infrastructure type story. And so basically Singapore's capital land investment is setting up a 256 million US dollar fund with a Thai developer, Brooksa Holding, which plans to invest in wellness and healthcare related real estates in Southeast Asia. Um, So, you know, they want to set up this wellness fund with about 500 million Sing dollars. They might expand that even to 1 billion, focusing on Singapore, Thailand, and Malaysia, but really looking to develop mixed-use, single wellness-based assets. So what do they mean by wellness-based assets? It's a lot designed to benefit from the fact that the region is getting older. We have this issue that is going to come up very soon of this aging demographic. So it's looking at things like retirement communities, um, hospitals, and hotels for medical tourists. Um, So there's, you know, you've got more of a hospitality angle in that Capital Lands Ascot Hospitality Platform would probably be used to manage a lot of these assets. And I think it's just an interesting one in terms of that angle towards the future. And obviously, we know this aging population, things are going to change in the region. But there's a lot of opportunities there um, that tourism hasn't capitalized on yet in terms of wellness, in terms of just uh, facilities for those kind of long-term, long-stay tourists who want to live out their retirement in Southeast Asia. So I, I think it's a very interesting angle. Yeah, an interesting story. And I guess that's one thing that we'll be seeing a lot more of over the coming years as we get you know these aging populations across the region focus on medical health and well-being tourism uh, and, and just generally this this rethinking of public health uh, public health infrastructure and how that actually is going to mean that people relocate or you know manage um, elderly relatives in different locations uh, definitely a coming storm I would say Hannah that's uh, one thing that we'll we'll keep an eye on over the next couple of years Brings us to number eight, which is an entirely different story. Um, This is about a science fiction movie called The Creator, which was shot in over 60 locations around Southeast Asia. Now, you know, movie tourism has been a big hot topic, really, hasn't it, in in, in recent years? A lot of it is happening across Asia Pacific from from Southeast Asia, uh, from South Korea to Indonesia to Vietnam. This story is relatively interesting because the actual science fiction is about really, you know, something I guess we're all quite scared about at the moment. That's how artificial intelligence uh, can exist alongside humans as, as robots and, and humanoid simulants and where that's going to take us in, in future. This, sort of, this uh, scenario is set in what is called a country called New Asia, um, which is a combination really of Laos, Thailand, Vietnam and Cambodia. Those 60 locations, most of them were shot uh, during the pandemic and they've been augmented with, with different tricks and, and, and treats technically. But I thought the, the interesting story about this really was that actually the director wanted to shoot the movie in, I think, Cambodia and Vietnam during the pandemic, uh, but couldn't get in without doing a quarantine. So ended up shooting most of it in Thailand. And apparently, you know, quite a lot of famous landmarks are included in this, including uh, Suvarnabhumi 
uh, International Airport, I think the Rosewood Hotel, Bangkok's main train station, and also Bele Beach in Krabi. Movie tourism, Hannah, it's a big thing. When this comes out, AI, movie tourism, travel, it's got everything, hasn't it? Yeah, it ticks all the boxes. Sounds exciting. And this this is one that I hadn't uh, been so clued up on either. But yeah, as we, we've seen, you know, so many of the countries around the region are really betting on um, putting in incentives for film tourism. Thailand is one. Malaysia in the budget for next year are going to add some tax incentives as well, I think, for encouraging foreign producers to come and film in the region because they just recognize the power of that. Um, you know, you had, as soon as something takes off in, in pop culture, people want to go there. People want to be in those same locations. So it's extremely powerful, soft power that I think the region has finally gotten onto is uh, worth pursuing. Yep, totally agree. The The movie is called The Creator. The article um, with it f- featuring an interview with the director is published in Condé Nast Traveler, the US version. Uh, we'll put a link up on the show notes because it's well worth reading. It's, it's pretty interesting about how they've gone about producing this, why they chose Southeast Asia. And uh, the, the actual, there's some shots from the movie itself. I'm not sure when it's actually released. I think it's quite soon. Um, but I imagine this will be you know, a hot movie in this region. And you know, people want to go and see some of those locations and how they've been treated on the silver screen in real life. For sure. So that brings us to a close of the show for this week. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and don't forget to send us your thoughts and comments on anything we discussed or anything we missed out. You can drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Yep. And as always, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue on our website, the seasiatravelshow.com. And of course, you can find us on any international podcast platform. So that's a wrap for today. We'll both be back soon to discuss more travel and tourism in Southeast Asia. See you then. 